0: Good morning, Emily. Is it morning? Yes. Somewhere. Somewhere. Remember the morning not that long ago when we had chocolate cake for breakfast? Oh, it was so good. That was Can a good one. do that again? Yep. Great. A uh, question for you could be one of the most controversial questions that I ask you. What is your favorite book to, I'm going to say, movie or TV adaptation? Go.
1: Oh, my gosh. I was not prepared. I know. I just
0: wanted your, your gut answer, your gut reaction. <laughs>
1: For some reason, the movie A Time to Kill just—I <laughs> don't you know, know why. I, I did read that book and I did watch that movie, and I like them both. When you look at those
0: groupings of uh, the John Grisham movies that all came out together back to back, The Firm, Pelican Brief, The Client, yep, Time to Kill—they were great. They were all excellent. I would agree with all of those. What about you? Well, the reason I'm going to say this one is because. I just watched it. Um, the, the Summer, summer I, I Turned, turned Pretty. pretty. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I knew it.
0: And I read the book for the first time pretty much the week before I watched the show and thought it was a great adaptation and thoroughly enjoyed
1: both. I did not read the book, but I really liked the show a lot. It's <laughs> a, a whole really bunch. It's a really
0: sweet show, uh, and I thought they changed just enough that it, it was... It worked yeah. and it was fine and there was nothing that I was angry about. Other people may have had something, but um, but I really enjoyed both of those things and
1: it felt like an adaptation. I'm usually, I will say, if we're talking about this, I am usually on, I'm worried when something that I love to read is turned into a TV show or a movie or even when movies are remade, like, please just don't touch the Princess Bride, guys. Just don't do it. Um, but I'm, I'm usually worried. And so I, I don't get excited. I don't get excited that they're making a book I love into a TV show or a movie. I just don't. And so I'm actually usually really excited when it's something slightly different or they've built on it, which is a good way towards today's panel, which is called the new book adaptation. And funny enough, so I love station 11 The the actual, um, seedling of this panel came because I did not read Station Eleven, the book, but I love it. Okay. But I love the show and Same. every interview I heard either with Patrick or, and they talked about, um, the author of the book and like their relationship and all of these things. So many people I heard from either on podcast or reading who did love the book, loved the show, but also acknowledged that he changed a lot of things that were like very, Integral to the book. And I thought it was just fascinating that people who loved the book were okay with these changes. Uh, They list some of them. But it made me wonder in this world that we're in right now, with IP being so important and everything is a universe and a spin off and based on a thing, how you make it your own and honor the book, but also are allowed to make changes and not alienate an audience. And I that is I was so excited that Patrick was on this panel is micro conversation with Graham Roland, who does Dark Winds, another book I haven't read. Um, but it was around like that concept with him and his show specifically. Cause I do think you hear so often that people are like, people may love the Harry Potter movies. I'm going to get you started on this, yeah, but know. are still upset. I'm about not going to go off any tangent because it's movies. And I don't feel that that's the tangent that's needed. What about when they make Harry Potter into a TV show? Cause you know, it's coming, you well, know, they're
0: about to do something in the universe See that I'm interested to see what it is. But I also like, I don't care about the fantastic beast movies. Yeah, I just,
1: I just don't care. A lot of people don't.
0: I know. So when a lot of people do, I mean, they do make good money. But yeah, it's just not, it's not for me, but I did deeply love the Harry Potter books, as yeah. we all know.
1: But but people were upset at different, I mean, there's a lot of them. So like, I can't again, talk about Goblet yeah, of Fire. Yeah, let's can't should, talk about yeah, it. See, and like how you can offend that audience because it's not exactly right, or it's not who the casting isn't how they pictured them. And so how does a creator of a television show that's what we're going to stick to television show be inspired by a book and tell that story and then also use it as a launching pad to update it or change it or take some ethos of it like I think about the leftovers like oh my gosh that I mean they had the author of the book as a writer on the show so that's like one leg up but like how do you do that and not just because you don't if it's exactly like the book like read the book (laughs)
0: Well, I'm so interested to see what they do with the new Lord of the Rings series I know that people are obviously very excited about. But it's, yeah, how you take the world and then expand on the world and create a whole new thing. Um, Our TV watch club recently, which is like a book club, but better because it's TV. Join ATX TV memberships. There you go. Good plug. It was for Paper Girls, Mm -hmm. which is now out on Amazon. And it's based on a comic book. Okay, So it's a comic book adaptation, which there are many of, as we know. And the fun thing about the TV Watch Club is, I would say, two or three of the members had read the comic books and were big fans of it. And everyone else just kind of jumped in, mainly because it was the TV Watch Club pick. And everyone loved it. Oh, good. And most people not myself, I have not finished it yet, but most people had watched, sat down to watch the pilot and watched all 10 episodes.
1: I'm excited.
0: All right? And they really loved, I love the fact that both people that were fans of the comic and people that literally had no idea what they were sitting down to watch, both loved it.
1: I think that's what's so hard. And that's what I'm fascinated a bit is about, is how do you capture both audiences and do right by it? Like, somebody may be like, oh, I wouldn't have changed that. Or, oh, that's different. That's fine. But- how you capture the original audience which is half the reason why studios and networks want to make books and things into is that it's a built-in fan base built-in audience but also get not alienate people who are like i didn't read the book i don't care right like i have to say uh this again it's a movie i probably shouldn't but the crawdads sing book Um, where the crawdads sing
0: Where the Crawdads Sing.
1: Uh, I know that was a really big book. I also didn't read it. Like, don't care about the movie.
0: I did read the book. And you still don't care about the movie? And I still don't care about the movie. (laughs) I just don't yeah. I don't really have a desire to see it. Yeah. I've watched the trailer. Isn't
1: this interesting? It if is we interesting make movies and TV shows based on books because people read the book and it was a very big book. But people are very excited about this movie. Okay.
0: I assume. Yeah. I think I actually you do don't assume know. You don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Well, but I'll be interested to see how it does. But yeah, but I do think that there is something I think you're right. Like when I I'm trying to think. When I'm here a book is being turned into a movie or TV show. Immediately scared. Yeah. When, if there's anything that I would get
1: really excited about, just because I've been let down so many times. You would have to know a lot of other things. You wouldn't just want to hear that it's being made like, it would have to be the right combination of who's making it in conjunction with the project itself, like in my opinion. And that is a lot of hurdles to get over for me to trust that you're not going to screw it up. Yeah. But I do like the thought that these... Especially Station 11, it does make me want
0: to go and actually read the book because now I'm so interested in how different they are. It makes me more want to read the book than if it was like, this is the perfect adaptation.
1: This is us being different. I'm like, I heard that it's a little bit more depressing. Oh, well, I the, didn't the, know that part. The, I don't want to read the it. And that the then. villain is more villainy and he's like a little hard. It's a little harder to take. And I was like, I'll just watch the show. Again. Oh, well, now that you told me that, I don't know that I would have <laughs> watched it. Well, with that, we're going to let. Graham and Patrick talk about their book adaptations. It's moderated by Sarah Petrie, who bit. knows many, many things about books. She yes. is the our book expert. She is. And for those that are wondering, because this podcast is coming out in a couple of weeks, will be the Emmys. Graham is not eligible because season one just came out for Dark Winds. Season two was picked up, so maybe next year they will get nominated. But Station Eleven was nominated for seven Emmys, including Patrick for writing the finale. Yay! So so enjoy the new book adaptation.
2: Please give it up for uh, Graham Rowland, the creator of Dark Winds, and Patrick Somerville, uh, the creator of Station Eleven. So. Hopefully they're the people you're here to see. If not, you can leave. No, don't <laughs> leave. Don't leave. Um, how many of you guys were there last night and saw the premiere of Dark Winds? Yes? Oh wow! Man.
3: Yeah. Yes. Thank you guys. Okay, good. Thank you so much.
2: Sorry, I'm having like I didn't wear an appropriate Dude, microphone outfit.
3: I didn't make a speech. That would have been bad.
2: There was like a lot of people on that stage.
3: It there was, was awesome. a lot. There was a lot. Yeah.
2: Um, how did that feel for you?
3: You know, it's always, uh, I, I, much, I don't like doing solo as much, but I like twos and threes. But when you get a big group of people, it's a, it's a little daunting on a panel. But it was great because it's, you know, the show, even just my involvement, I came on at the tail end. Uh, Robert Redford was developing it for 35 plus years, and then I came on in the last three plus. And to be there with everyone um, last night and getting to share it with all of you was, was a really amazing experience. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of like a production meeting up there. Yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> and I want to point out that I just found out that you guys are friends. Like you've
4: Yeah. Well, I'm a former employee of for Rams. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we,
3: uh, we left on good terms. Yeah. I would say we're friends. That, yeah. 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 He's like, no. <laughs> no, uh, Patrick, so I did a show called Jack Ryan, and when we were in the early phases of it, um, we were looking for amazing writers to come in and give us a bunch of amazing ideas that we would then steal. Convert into <laughs> assets <access to laughs> for yourself. Yeah. how, you go. and how it goes. Mm. <laughs> and he, um, I did it with Carlton Cuse, and Carlton, I um, had I'd also worked with Damon Lindelof, and they were still very good friends, and Damon had hired Patrick, and he was like, you gotta hire this guy, this guy's a genius. And we got him in there, he was in between seasons of Leftovers, um,
4: one week, one week, one room.
3: week, and in that one week, we used probably twenty percent of the show is probably still you <laughs> used a lot of <laughs> his ideas.
4: Sue so, Sue so is also in that room. Uh huh. It was a pretty pretty stacked room. It was fun. Wow. It was really fun. It was a really fun room.
2: Um, well, we're here to talk about uh, book adaptations. Um, that is this panel. Uh, so I have to say, like, uh, I've usually moderated the other side of this conversation with um, writers whose work has been adapted. So I'm really excited to talk. To the folks on the other side, about like what the process is like, um, and I think, you know, my first question is a pretty obvious one. But how did you guys like? What attracted you about the source material, um, and like, made you want to be involved?
4: Um, I'll, I'll start. Uh, Station think. Eleven uh, was a novel that came out, I think, in twenty fourteen, and I I knew Emily St. John Mandel just a little tiny bit because I'm I'm a novelist too, and was. Uh, exclusively that in in 2010, 11, 12, 13. And I read together with Emily in Chicago once um, when my fourth uh, book, my second novel was coming out. Um, And her third book was coming out. Uh, Station 11 didn't exist yet. And we drove, uh, I drove her back to O'Hare from kind of the outskirts of Chicagoland where four people had come to our reading. Um, (laughs) And I was talking about how it was, it was very hard to be a literary fiction novelist and make a living. I had a baby and I was broke basically and I, I was like, this isn't tenable, I don't <laughs> think, this model, uh, three years of work on spec and then not enough money ultimately and then hoping that it sells and then if it doesn't, uh, you're kind of deeper in a trough and looking at another three years of spec work. So I said, I'm gonna try to get a job in Hollywood, I'm gonna try to get into TV. I had no idea how to do that, but I was, uh, I was committed. <laughs> and she said, I'm gonna keep working on the novel I'm working on and, and just see if it works out. And I moved to LA and I got a job um, on the bridge eventually. And I was in the writer's room when Emily's book came out and it was a bestseller. Uh, yeah. And I was like, okay, she did actually uh, manage to figure, crack the code there. Um, but I loved that book a lot, uh, just um, on a, based on its scale. Uh, but its intimacy is an is interesting combination of genre stuff. Um, big storytelling, post-apocalyptic, just, yeah. just, and the world ending. And it's just really intimate, grounded, down-to-earth um, character stuff with the symphony. And then the Hollywood stuff is strange to me because I was living there. The Arthur stuff. There's a lot more Arthur stuff than in our show. And the Midwest on top of it. I grew up in Green Bay. Um, Wisconsin on Lake Michigan, and the idea of shooting a show like in the woods uh, around my my homeland was very exciting, but it was um, it was being developed into a film for years, and I didn't have any juice as a producer. Or I couldn't do anything, so I just watched, and uh, it did kind of tanked in development as a movie. I kept hearing it was not uh, going so well and a money pit, and it, it makes sense if you read the book that how how you could fit that story into uh, features um, you'd have to shed everything uh, that makes it what it is so I went on leftovers met Graham was gave him many episode ideas in yep. a one week period and he profited off of my work and then uh, <laughs> then made a show called maniac and then right at the end of that I I happened, it was 2019, I happened to get a meeting with a producer named Scott Steindorf who controlled the book, who had, was responsible for this uh, disastrous thing I had been hearing about. And I got a meeting with him for something else. Um, I don't know what it was for, but I got into his office and I was like, actually, let's talk about Station Eleven. Um,
2: was he uh, surprised? Yeah, he was.
4: <laughs> and I said, it's got to be a limited series, there's no, there's no way to do anything else. And he said, tell me more. And I, I said a few things, and I, um, I got him on board, and then we went, took it to Paramount, and uh, we started from there.
2: And just one more question on that before we move over you. Like, were you did you talk to Emily at all during that time? Like, one time. Okay.
4: I called her from my trailer at Maniac, and I said, I'm going to go to the producer who controls your book, and I'm going to go surprise him. Was she like, do it? Yeah, because she was frustrated. Yeah. She, she, it was a huge book. It was a bestseller. And often, as a novelist, this has happened to me in uh, my, my first chapter, where your book gets optioned, and you're like, I'm done. I'm rich. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I don't have, it's it's going to be a movie. It'll show up in two years, whatever. And then people call you or email you, and then suddenly it goes quiet for like eight months, mm-hmm. and no one will talk to you about it. And then it's like, oh, she disconnected. She's detached. Uh, he, he's not interested anymore. And it just kind of fizzles every time and you end up just with this option payment, which was nice, but not significant, really. So by then she really just wanted it to get made somehow. Yeah, yeah. And she was, I think, happy, because it was me, because she trusted, she trusted that a, a, another fiction writer was going to do it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah
2: um,
3: uh, Well, well Before we move on to me, one thing I think is amazing as a fan of his show is that he was out making the show before the pandemic. And uh, yeah. to me, the prescience in, in that um, and, and how spot on it was with what actually we actually went through was just amazing. I think it's just
4: dumb luck. What's the opposite of luck? <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect unluck. Yeah. But we, we shot episodes one and three before the pandemic and then moved to Toronto and then shot everything else. So our before is our before.
2: And, Graham, for you, I mean, you know, these books started coming out, what is, like, 1970, 71? Yes. So, these aren't, like, recent bestsellers, um, so they've been around, obviously, a long time. So, how did you, like, did you read in these books, like, in the past, or?
3: You know, I hadn't. um, Robert Redford had optioned them in 86, and Oh, wow,
2: I didn't realize it was that long ago, okay,
3: wow. was, had been trying to make it into a movie, and he actually did for PBS, but I don't think he it turned out the way he wanted. And so, but he never gave up on it. And he was also a Santa Fe resident, where Tony Hillman was, and they knew each other. And um, years went by, and uh, Bob hooked up with another Santa Fe resident, uh, a guy named George R. R. Martin. And <laughs> never heard uh, of him. Yeah, yeah never he's heard had of some him. success. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. George, it, during this lunch that they had with Chris Ayer, they decided, you know, what about a TV show? Because novels lend themselves, like Patrick said, there's, when you try to turn it into a two hour movie, you have to shed so much character stuff usually yeah. is the first thing to go. And so, you know, they said, okay, let's do a TV show. We need a writer. And around beginning of 2019, I got a call. I was finished with Jack Ryan. I got a call. Um, about this series of books, and in the meantime, you know, I'm I grew up in Oklahoma. Um, um, I'm part Native American. I'm Chickasaw and Choctaw, and um, I'd always wanted to do a show with a Native American protagonist that wasn't like centered around like Indian gaming or something like that. Um, you know, the stories that I had seen growing up involving um, Native Americans. You know, my dad's generation, they were the antagonists, you know, to the homesteaders or to the cowboys. And then in my generation, even films like *Dances with Wolves, which is a beautiful film in many ways, you were still having the white character bring you into the native story. And they made, yes, they made great strides to humanize the native characters and dimensionalize them, but you were still having this white character, this Trojan horse, you know. It's, it's really about the natives, but we're just using the white character. To bring you in. And this, when I opened the book, that was the first thing that jumped out at me. It was like, oh wow, this doesn't do that. You know, this yeah. is a chance. And if somebody, if anybody can get a mate, it's these two guys. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so. Two that, white, white guys? <laughs> <laughs> it, made, it made perfect sense. Um, and so, um, to me, that was what it was. It was really the, the, I, the chance to do a show that took place in a native community where your way into the show was a native protagonist, in this case, two. And you're seeing the world through their eyes. So that was really what drew me in.
4: Yeah. And
3: Robert Redford and George R. R. Martin also. I've can heard, heard of them.
4: Can I, ask, can, I, can I ask you a question about this? Because it comes up for all writers, but you're talking about point of view in the lead of your show. Mm-hmm. Um, the writer's room uh, needs, to, do you, needs to reflect that, mm-hmm. the, identity wise, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do you think, what, what does that representation need to look like to be right? Uh, in storytelling. Now that, now that the leads of shows are different kinds of people, what does the room need to look like for it to kind of pass, pass the test? I don't know what the test is, but the storyteller's test of this is, this, this is fair, this makes sense, the right minds are making this story, the right leadership is in the room.
3: Uh, it's a great question, and I think it was something that even before we had a writer's room. It was something that was on all of our minds, um, and AMC, you know, to their credit, was 100% behind it, which you know, we went to them and we said, we wanna start a writer's room with all native writers, and we're not really concerned with how much experience they have, or if they've ever even worked in television, but we feel like that's the way we have to do this show, and so we did, we hired five amazing native writers, and um, two, most of which had never been in a writer's room. Two of them were, were Danae, were Navajo, and um, to your point, We felt it was as as important that not only the writers, but, you know, the props department, that we have natives represented in every department, because when you're so focused on the story, you need somebody else with that same perspective and same passion to be focused on the other details. Chris Ayer, the director, um, had made a comment last night on our panel that, you know, he, because he was so focused on directing, he had really only been paying attention to the actors and what they were doing in the scenes and sitting back and watching the, sh- the show on the big screen last night, he was able to, to notice the beauty of the set deck and all of the, and the props and all of the different things that all of these wonderful um, native uh, crew members had brought to it. And so we felt that was really essential.
4: I think that's really unique and remarkable and awesome that AMC it was fully behind you.
3: Awesome. Uh, they never at once said, "Oh, we're not sure about this." They were 100% behind us. Yeah, that's amazing. And I
2: mean, it, it speaks to great segue to my next question, which is, you know, when you're adapting a book, um, I assume there's a process of like trying to figure out what is it about this book that really, you know, captured people's attention. Like, what is, what is like at the core of the book that is absolutely vital to bring into the adaptation. Um, and obviously the, the representation and the characters is a huge part. Um, but you know, for, for y'all, like, what, what were the elements of the book and the spirit that like, you were like, we've gotta nail this, or like we can't lose this when we're in the process of adapting it? Either of you can go first, whatever you um. want.
3: Well, first, it was just the authenticity. Since I was already talking about it, it was the authenticity yeah. of the culture and the world and the details, um, and making sure that we got that right. You know, not only in the writing phase, but then every day on set, having the consultants there. You know, everybody making sure that we were getting it right. That was of paramount importance to us. Yeah,
4: I, I think Station Eleven was tricky because it's got a lot of cool stuff in it um, at the service level, but what I most gravitated to, I think, was Emily's voice uh, in, in the way that she told that story, yeah. or the, the tone of it, uh, the treatment of um, you know something terrible like the flu, uh, zooming out away from, from the, the details of pain and death and mass death, and, and it's kind of, she, it, actually on the page, at the sentence level, she just used ellipses a lot. Um, to stand in for and then he died, basically. you know, The <laughs> sentence would just kind of you know, the, uh, end on an ellipsis and then we'd skip over the bad part and then start up again in a news space where it was safer. And I, I think that dot, dot, dot was what we needed to recreate uh, yeah. in, in the TV version of a dot, dot, dot. I, I did not know what that was going in, yeah. but I think we found it a lot in the metaphor of Dr. Levin um, the man in space, and then visually, I think uh, we bounced a lot between big super wide um, and drone shots, and then really close and there was a kind of there was a cadence to the way we shot it that would take these huge breaths and then go and then land right close inside someone 's intimate world. Um, not to mention, I think you know we move around in time quite a lot, uh, so the edit uh, became very important to at a microscopic level, recreate that.
2: Um, And then, you know, obviously Tony Tony Hillerman has passed away. Um, Yeah. You guys mentioned last night that, you know, his daughter has written some books about Bernadette, Mm -hmm. Um, but I was curious, uh, you know, maybe with Anne, his daughter, or with Emily, I mean, were they involved at all, um, like initially, or are they still part of the conversation?
4: Emily was not involved in making Station Eleven. I had her blessing, you know, a few Mm -hmm. times I texted her um, and asked her about key, critical things, and if it would, uh, if it would be sad to to her if this happened or this happened. But she was just sort of busy working on a different novel and trusting, and just like kind of good by me. Um, but she's. I'm working on a new show now um, called The Glass Hotel, which is based on another novel of hers, and it kind of intersects with Station Eleven and and, and our characters, and. She we're doing it completely differently. She's in the writers room, and oh, she wow. wants, yeah, she wants to sort of come o- come over to the dark <laughs> side for all much money. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> her yeah. So uh, it's been both, and uh, and it's it's going great. It's going great.
2: That's that's such a unique situation. That's funny. Like, um, and yeah. What what about for you?
3: Um, as you mentioned, Tony passed away. So the first two shows that I've done, the, the author hasn't been with us. Um, and we've dealt with the estate. But in this case, um, George R. R. Martin was friends with Tony. Oh, okay. Being, being fellow writers, being um, both from Santa Fe, they knew each other pretty well. And Tony knew his family. I mean, George knew Tony's family. Gotcha. And so he knew Anne. He had a relationship with Anne. Nice. And so she was involved, involved along the whole process and will continue to be involved if we're lucky enough to keep making the show. Um, but George was sort of the interface between Anne and myself and then the writers um, because of their relationship. And then also, George um, has an extreme ex- affinity for Tony and his writing too, so that was also like having, you know, um, not exactly having the writer there, but having another member there to sort of, okay, when you're taking license, are you taking license for the right reasons, or are you changing something just to change it, or are you really making the story better? And so it it keeps you in line as you're kind of going about your adaptation. So it was really helpful.
4: Was he in the room?
3: No, he wasn't in the room. <laughs> I mean, well, we didn't in have a room. room; it was all virtual. All oh, right. Um, was he in the Zoom? He was, in the Zoom. <laughs> he was not in the Zoom. So primarily, we you know we interfaced one on one with him or on calls, and you know emails and things like that. Um, and then in the early on when I was writing the pilot, you know, giving drafts, getting notes back, those kinds of things.
4: So he was there though. He was, he the was there. President. Oh That's yeah, cool. yeah.
3: He was very present.
2: That's pretty wild. I don't know. Just like the yeah, George R. Martin like fantasy fantasy icon in your in your Zoom.
3: And giving you notes. Pretty <laughs> <laughs> pretty, pretty intimidating.
2: <laughs> Speaking of notes, um, you know. I don't know how you guys feel about reviews, et cetera, but I would be interested if you've heard from people who are fans of the books, p- people in your life that you know, or just random readers, like, have you gotten feedback from folks, or have you read any feedback? I
4: haven't. I mean, it just came, you know, I, just premiered, it's a but. I early for you. Yeah. Well, all of Canada is pissed at me. <laughs> <laughs> for moving, moving to the beginning of the show to Chicago instead of Toronto. Um, Although, as I sometimes point out, eighty percent of the book takes place in Michigan, Um, and so that's that's what we did too. Yeah. And we, you know, we moved to Toronto because of uh, coronavirus. But there's a kind of strange, I don't know, irony, I guess, in the fact that I made the show be Chicago, and then the coronavirus came, and then we had to move production from (laughs) Chicago to
2: Toronto. (laughs) It's
4: karma. Um, And I think, you know. Emily is the one who gets that more. Um, I think Emily online gets people saying, I can't believe what they fucking did to your book. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, usually, she's like, I actually really like the show. Uh, and then it, get, it kind of fizzles, I guess. But almost the Game of Thrones thing was interesting because George lost control completely of the fan base's uh, uh, attitude toward the show. I think there was a bunch of people who were like, fuck George Martin, like, <laughs> it, it, because he was defending the show online, there's a whole army of people who were defending the books beyond what he was doing. Um, so our fans are not this uh, intense, I think. But uh, I think largely, I've seen a lot of people saying, like, I thought I was not going to like it because I'm such a fan of the, the, the book. But somehow the adaptation held true to the spirit of the book enough to keep, keep them both, you know?
2: Yeah, and I think, I, mean, I think television, like you guys have been saying, is such a better medium for book adaptations um, because, as you said, you don't have to just cut out tons of stuff. Um, I mean, as a, as a person who like, has seen a lot of my favorite books turned into movies, I always make a point of not rereading the book before the movie because I don't want to remember all the things that— I th- made that th- same th- point
4: to <laughs> myself before I made the show. <laughs>
2: Um, but I th- yeah, with television, you you have more space and you have more time.
4: Well, I, I also think it's about tone again, like the, television in, is the only medium where the writer uh, is in control through the post process all the way, which means the microscopic the feeling of the show can be get get really close to the feeling of the book, I think, and so to me, it's less about what stayed in and went out and more about what the attitude of the. The, the person running, running posts, um, writing the scripts, being there on the day, what that, that attitude was about the, the material.
2: So just kind of random question, but is there any book that y'all are fans of, like hardcore fans, that you're like, this should never be adapted? Things Neuromancer. Have, you already have your answer.
3: <laughs> what are you
4: working on next?
3: Um, <laughs> I can't say. Yeah. Um, yeah,
4: I'm just kidding. I've never read Neuromancer. Um, do you, why don't you answer, I'm sorry. Um, I made a big joke out of it.
3: <laughs> big joke out of my career. Um,
4: I can because you hired me. I think, I think
3: I'm think i a Yes. I took a lot of your ideas. <laughs> um, I don't, you know, I'd have to come back to you on that. I don't know.
2: All good, I'm just curious.
3: The, and
4: the question was, what would we be, like, eek, afraid of if someone was doing it?
2: Or yeah, what would you, like, because sometimes there's books where it's like this, you know, there's elements of it that you're like, how could they possibly capture this like, on, on a screen? Um.
4: Yeah, I mean, I, Catch-22 for a long time was my, my favorite book when I was, uh, I guess, a teenager. And I, d- I never liked that movie um, when I was a kid, the, the one with Alan Arkin. Um, but I think it's better than I could tell back hmm. then. But then the show came, I, I, I was very protective of it and then I thought the show was really good. And I, I think like anything is possible in terms of, of adaptation, um, depending on the, the parties involved. So I'm, I'm usually pretty optimistic, I guess, um, when something, something I like is, is coming around.
2: It's always impressive to see in Hollywood that you're optimistic, that's good.
4: <laughs> you know, I, didn't, I didn't start in Hollywood. <laughs>
3: you haven't had any of your novels turn into movies yet, have you? Well, I've, I've been
4: through the process, you yeah. know, I've, scripts have been written. But I've been more like in the, in the world of uh, where Emily was at when kind of the development was running in, into a wall. So yeah. one short story I wrote got made into a short film. Um, it was fun. I don't know. It didn't. It didn't. Um, it didn't exactly feel like the, the thing I had written, but it was. It was very fun that yeah. it had happened. But yeah, I guess that's probably the
3: ultimate answer, is is a novel I wrote. That that seems that seems the hardest thing to do to be in that position to watch something that you labored over and you have such a specific idea of what it is and then to let it go. Yeah, leap of faith. Yeah.
2: Um, well, I think we might have time for a question or two if. And this ready. Michael's ready. Ready. Go for it, Michael. Um,
0: well I think of a quintessential
3: example like the Americans, and you're talking about the author coming in and um, so what do you feel is 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 a detriment of having that original person there? Um is it create too much, you know, founder trying to hyper control versus what are you getting or um, but that worked out really well obviously.
4: In my experience it's no. Um, and I was in the leftovers room for two years with Tom Parada in it too, Um, and Damon was in charge. But I think they had found a really comfortable balance already about how that conversation operated, and I joined at the beginning of season two after they had exhausted all the contents of the novel. So Tom was sort of in a new space too um, as we were going forward, so I'm pretty sure That I mean, that was just good modeling to watch how Damon and Tom, two just great writers and professionals, sort of navigated the thing you're talking about. Um, It would play out in the way they pitched. Um, You know, Damon would pitch something insane uh, and sci-fi based, (laughs) and Tom would pitch something grounded with two characters sitting on a picnic table, uh, (laughs) and then somehow the room would kind of find a way to meet in, in the middle there. But I think for the Large part, I think every novelist I've worked with in a writer's room knew that they were in a new space, uh, craft-wise. So it was as much about the group, the group finding the answer as, as any one tension.
2: Nice. Any other questions? I question. Yes. Um, I I think it's really interesting that both of you are here because one of you had a gigantic source material to work with. And Station Eleven was fairly a short novel that you took and went with. And I also kind of looking at how readers feel ownership of what they've read. I mean, authors do, of course, but like, you know, that's one of the adaptation problems. And I think both of you have done an excellent job. Station Eleven, we were really, we had read it a couple of years before it came out, and then we lived it, and then <laughs> we were waiting for the show. And it's not something I would have ever even wanted to read, but I had read it and it's just, it's an amazing book, it is, and you did an amazing job. Thank you. And we're usually really critical with the adaptation, so, I mean, it seems like there was real contrast, like how you build and then how you uh, integrate.
4: Yeah, you had to sort of, are you compressing multiple books down into one story, or are you sticking to one book's story?
3: Well, the way it was written, so it's interesting that you know um, Tony started with the Joe Lee porn character and then sold the rights to the character to a movie studio and didn't get them back for ten years, and so that's why Jim Chee was created, and so these two characters exist, exist, existed <laughs> separately on separate tracks, and so when we went about adapting it, we said let's take the narrative from from Listening Woman, um, that'll be our our wow. case our case. But Chi, Jim Chi didn't exist in that novel. And so we had to kind of cherry pick you know, who Jim Chi was and kind of uh, we cherry picked a little bit from um, People of Darkness. Um, but the idea going forward is that okay, you know, because Tony's books are so closed ended, um, the characters keep going, but they really lend themselves well to a season of television because it's a, it's a mystery, it's a case, and you want to solve the mystery by the end of the season, and there's 18 books. Um, so you know, we got to do 18 seasons. Wow. <laughs> That's there fascinating, there
4: though, because it feels fair, because there was like a false um, business thing that, cr- that created yeah. that riffle, that yeah. split them, it feels fair game to, to fuse them again. He
3: ended up fusing them in his later novels, uh, but by then, porn was much older and then she was young, and so this, you know, we kind of brought them closer back in age and put him together right away on the tribal police force.
4: We're in a really similar boat with The Glass Hotel because what we're doing is uh, we've taken Miranda, the character from Station Eleven, and we've basically plopped her down right as the detective uh, mm-hmm. at, at the center of The Glass Hotel trying to find out what happened to another character. Um, so we're splicing, we're kind of slicing a character off and integrating her into a pre-existing story, but it has all these implications that start spilling out. Um, I don't know if you're finding that too, sort of the, you bring one person in and it sort of changes something, the dynamic between the two characters is new territory for you.
3: Absolutely, because when we brought Jim Chee in, it not only affected, you know, Leigh Porn's character, but it affected Bernadette's character, who is our, who's the other tribal police officer because, you know, for fans of the book, you know, they end up getting married and so it's like, okay, well, when do we start that journey? Like. Um, uh a so love triangle now? <laughs> uh, not a love a triangle, per se, but um, yeah, it affected everything. It affected um, every aspect of the story, and finding a way that, to, to make the two characters um, different and distinct enough, but they do the same job, they're, for all intents and purposes, partners, in, in this case, um, they, but they grew up in the same area, and so trying to find ways to really differentiate them. Uh, age being, you know, the easiest one.
4: It's so strange to say, but I, I kind of think ad- a good adaptation has to feel like a new story. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't mean like a corrupted version, but it's gotta, it's, there's gotta be something new um, for yep. it to, to have new life.
3: Yeah, well, novels are so internalized and you have that benefit as the reader of getting a window into what everybody's thinking, you know, when you're reading. And so the, the biggest challenge when you take it to screen is, okay, well, I don't have that ability anymore unless I do voiceover, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and Patrick told me early on, no voiceover, yeah. <laughs> anything that you do. Well,
4: this is why Jeevan and Kirsten kept hanging out in the beginning of Station 11, because you can't just have Jeevan walking around having a neurotic breakdown in, in the, yeah. in the exact, exact same problem we were trying to solve.
2: Well, I think that's a good note to end on, that, yeah, it has to kind of feel like a new story, I think. You nailed it. Um, so yeah, thank you guys so much. This thank was you. wonderful. And
4: thank, thank you.
2: Thank you
1: You have been listening to the TV Campfire Podcast hosted by ATX TV co-founders Emily Gibson and Caitlin McFarland and produced and edited by Sarah Light.
0: This conversation was recorded live at ATX TV Festival Season 11 in Austin, Texas
1: between June 2nd and 5th, 2022. For more information on the festival and becoming an ATX TV member, follow us at ATX Festival or visit ATXFestival.com.